Well, good morning. Uh, you've joined us here today for worship. And um, this morning, I had the privilege of teaching on really one of the most well-known and beloved stories that Jesus ever taught, the parable of the prodigal son. Charles Dickens, who wrote many well-known and beloved stories himself, famously called this parable the greatest short story ever written. That is certainly high praise, but my hope is that after we spend time together looking at this story, we too will come away with a greater appreciation for this parable and what it teaches us about God. So I've titled my message today, The Parable of the Compassionate Father and His Two Sons. As we will see, the main character in this story is actually the father, not the prodigal son. Jesus taught this parable to teach us what God is like. In this parable, we're going to be provided with a beautiful picture of God's compassionate love and forgiveness for wayward sinners. Now, for me personally, uh, this story's had a huge impact in my life. God's used this parable to completely reshape and transform uh, my understanding of him as a good father. Now, you see, growing up, I had a very poor concept of what a father was supposed to be. I loved my dad, and he did the best he knew how. But the reality was that my dad was not very present in my life growing up. And when he was present, he was often angry. So for the first seven years of my life, my dad worked second shift. So he left for work at 3 p.m. and got home at 11 p.m., which meant that he was gone uh, which meant he, he was gone when we got home from school. So we didn't see him very much in the early years. But this actually was a good thing <clears throat> because it meant there was more peace in our home. So the first seven years, my dad was not around a lot. But about eight years old, uh, things changed. My dad got enough seniority to get moved to first shift, which meant that he would be home in the evenings with us as a family. Now, for most families, this would have been a blessing, but not necessarily for mine. I can clearly remember that my sisters and I had a daily ritual when we got home off the bus each day. We'd walk in the door around 3.15, and my mom would warmly greet us and have some kind of snack there uh, for us to eat. We'd spend about 15 minutes together talking about our days and enjoying our food. But at about 3.30, my sisters and I's attention would shift to the window, looking outside the driveway, waiting for Dad's car to pull up. At some point, one of us would spot the car and say to the other, Dad's home. Um, This was a signal to scurry to our rooms before Dad walked in the door. We would leave our bedroom doors cracked open just enough to hear how Dad greeted Mom when he walked in the house. We could tell right away, based on the tone in his voice, if, it was, if this was a day that we could safely leave our bedrooms and not risk getting yelled at, or if it was a day that we should stay in our rooms until we knew we could sneak out and not run into Dad. Now, I know this sounds pretty terrible, but this is a small window into my life um, with my father growing up. Now, as you can imagine, I struggled with understanding God as a good father. I grew up going to church and learning about God being a loving and compassionate father, but really it was just head knowledge. It never made its way to my heart. Now, because of my experience with my, earth, my, because my, experience with my earthly father was so void of affection, love, and intimacy, I struggled to understand God rightly as a good and perfect father who deeply loves his children. So as a result, my relationship with God for a long time was distant, and based more on guilt and shame than on forgiveness and love. Now, even though I heard lots of messages about God's love, it never really sunk deep down in, and I always struggled with my worth as a child of God. Now, I share my story because I imagine others can relate. Relate with struggling to truly know and embrace God's deep love for you as a child, as his child. Now, but here's the thing. No matter how good or bad an earthly father that each of us had, 
The reality is that all of us struggle to some degree to truly grasp God's good and perfect love for us as his children. So as I shared earlier, uh, the parable that we're going to be looking at today has been instrumental in helping me understand God as a good father. As we dive into this passage together in a moment, I pray that all of us will come away with a stronger knowledge and belief in our Heavenly Father's love for us. And I hope that we're moved to bring and to share that this love to those around us and those who have no grasp of God's love for them as Father. So at this time, I want to invite you uh, to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Um, in front of you, there may be a pew Bible if you didn't bring one. Uh, you can find Luke 15 on page 1035. I want to encourage you to have a Bible handy because we'll be reading uh, the passages together and, and allowing God's Word to speak. Now, to begin uh, to rightly understand this parable of the prodigal son, we first need to start at the beginning of Luke 15. Now, the first two verses of Luke provide kind of the backdrop and really the motivation for why Jesus teaches our parable today. And so let's look at Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. Let's stop there. So in the crowd that day, we see there's two groups of people who had come to see Jesus. The first group were tax collectors and sinners. Now, they were drawn to the teachings of Jesus. In the gospel accounts, you see repeatedly that Jesus gets in big trouble for spending time with these people. It's easy for us to say now, you know, why the big fuss that Jesus spent time with tax collectors and sinners? What, what's the big deal? Since, but the reality is we didn't live in the first century, so it's difficult for us to culturally understand why Jesus got into trouble for hanging out with these people. Let me take a moment to explain why people were upset with Jesus for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors were, really fe- were fellow Jews that had paid the Roman Empire for the rights to collect taxes on their fellow people. So in the eyes of the Jews, they were traitors, traitors with Rome. And if you know your history, the Roman Empire was a ruthless empire. If you didn't bow to Caesar and worship him, they would wipe out entire cities, men, women, and children. So the fact that these tax collectors were assisting the Romans to exploit their very own people made them, as you can understand, greatly hated. As kids, you know, I think we, most of us probably grew up learning a song about a tax collector named Zacchaeus. You know the song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man as he climbed up upon a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Now, it's a cute song, um, but for the, Jews, for the Jews, for the Jewish people in Jesus' day, tax collectors were anything but cute. Um, we little men, they were really a despised group of people because they collected money from the occupying enemy and they cheated the people as well. I tried to think of a modern-day equivalent in our culture to a tax collector and I came up with this. A tax collector today would be like an ISIS sympathizer. ISIS is a terrorist group um, that does terrible things that I won't even mention. Now imagine Jesus hanging out with people who in some way would support the cause of ISIS we would obviously be outraged. In the first century, tax collectors were similar in that they conspired with Rome to oppress the people and did terrible things. So Jesus' befriending of the tax collectors was utterly scandalous in first century culture. Now Luke also tells us that sinners were coming to Jesus and being welcomed by him. Once again, since we were removed from that culture, it's difficult for us to understand why this is a big problem. We're all sinners, right? But in Jesus' day, the term sinners was used for a class of people that had complete disregard for the law. Sinners were the social outcasts of the culture. Sinners were prostitutes, people with leprosy or other unclean diseases, the deformed. 
Sinners were people who led uh, very sinful and immoral lifestyles. Now, again, I tried to think of a modern-day equivalent uh, to sinners in our culture. Now, I came up with this. The equivalent for sinners in our culture would be homosexuals, transgenders, and drug dealers. Now, let's be honest. That's not a group of people that church people normally would go out of their way to fellowship with. So when Luke says that Jesus was receiving these type of people and eating with them, maybe we can better understand how scandalous this really was. Now, we have one more group of people in the audience that day, the Pharisees. Now, we often give Pharisees a bad rap, but their devotion to God really can't be questioned. They knew their Bibles really better than any of us here today. They had memorized the Torah, and they sought to obey every command of God. Now, of course, they had their problems, pretty big ones, but you can't question their zeal for God. I tried to think of a modern-day equivalent of Pharisees today, and as much as I really tried not to come up with this equivalent, it it really just fits. The modern-day equivalent to Pharisees is church people. Now, let's be honest. If Jesus lived today and was found welcoming and eating with ISIS sympathizers, homosexuals, and drug addicts, most of us would have a problem with that. The fact that Jesus was receiving and eating with these type of people was utterly scandalous in that day. So in verse 2, we see the Pharisees grumbling. Grumbling that Jesus was associating with such notorious sinners and outcasts. In the second half of the verse, the Pharisees Pharisees make an accusation. Look at this accusation at the end of verse 2. They say this, This man welcomes and receives sinners, and he eats with them. Now to sit down and eat with someone in Jesus' day was considered to be acceptance of them. The accusation here by the Pharisees was that Jesus was condoning of their behavior. It's as if they were saying, how dare Jesus hang out with these people? They don't come to our services. They don't follow our laws. Does he not know the sinful things that they do? He must be just like them, or else he would not eat with and accept them. So in light of the Pharisees' accusation, Jesus goes on to tell a series of three parables. We're going to focus on the third parable today, but next week, Pastor Gary will be teaching on the first two parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. But now let's go on and look at our our parable today, the parable of the prodigal son. So now that we have the setting of this parable, let's start in the story. Let's pick up in verse 11. Will you you read with me? Verse 11, we read, There was a man who had two sons. Now let's stop there for a second. Now traditionally, this story is known and referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. So one son. But as we see here in this verse, this story has two sons. Even more, the main subject of the sentence is a man with two sons or a father. So according to this verse, there are actually three characters with this story. A father and his two sons. The traditional of the name of the story being the parable of the prodigal son really does a disservice to the other characters in the story. As we will see, the main character in this story is really the father. He's in every part of the story. The fact that Jesus begins this by the story by saying there was a man with two sons gives support that the main character is the father. So let's continue, and we're going to start by looking at the younger son in verse 12, and we'll see the younger son's interaction with the father. So will you pick with me? We'll, let's, read, let's look at verse 12 together. Verse 12 says, The younger son said to the father, Father, give me my share of the state. Here we see a demand of the son. Now, the original audience would have been completely and utterly shocked at this demand. And the custom of their day, as it really is still true in our day, was that an inheritance was not given until someone passes away. For this younger son to come and ask his father for his share of inheritance before the father is dead is tantamount to saying, Father, I wish you were already dead 
But since you aren't, I can't wait any longer. Give me what is coming to me. Now the son's demand here is a huge slap in the face of the father. What the son is really saying is that he loves the possessions of the father more than the father himself. But what would have been even more shocking to the original audience is how the, fa- is how the father responds to the son's request. It would have been completely acceptable for the father to drive out the son of his presence with a beating and blows. But the father doesn't do that. Instead, the father meets the son's request and gives him his inheritance. So right away, the Pharisees and the original audience would have been shocked at what's going on here at this story. Now, before we continue on and examine kind of the younger son's rebellion, I want to make a connection to the younger son for each of us. Now, all of us here at some point now or in the past have lived like this younger brother in our relationship with God. We loved God's gifts to us more than we loved God himself. The Bible calls this idolatry. When we love, worship, and live for the things of the world more than God. Now before we come to Christ, before we are saved, the Bible teaches that we live like the younger brother here. We love the world and things more than we love God. And Ephesians 2 teaches that you were dead in your trespasses and sin and what you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. All of us lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. So as we see the actions of the younger brother in this story, we need to know that we have lived or are even living now like this younger brother. And as we are about to see, loving the gifts of God more than God himself will always end in, in disaster and misery. So let's continue to take a look, closer look at the younger brother and see what happens next. We'll pick up in verse 13. Now, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. So the son takes his inheritance, he leaves home, and he goes off to a distant place to, to essentially party. I imagine all of us at some point have been tempted to do this. I bet there are some here that have gone through a period of rebellion and running from God, just like this younger brother here. The reality is that sin tempts us with the promises of pleasure and freedom. But ultimately, sin will never satisfy. As we're about to see with this son and this story, running from home and running from God will always have consequences. Now let's look at verse 14 to 16 and we'll see the consequences that this younger son runs into. In verse 14 we read, After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach in the po- with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything to eat. Now in these verses, we see the consequences of sin's rebellion. For the original Jewish audience, the picture here would have been utterly detestable. For Jews, pigs were com- totally unclean. The picture here would have been, um, and the, for the younger brother to yearn to eat, even the slop of these unclean animals would have been a horrendous proposition. So not only that, but the younger brother here seeks employment and support from a Gentile master. For the audience listening to Jesus that day, this would have been as low as one could be. Jesus here is painting a picture of a son hitting rock bottom. Instead of the freedom that he so badly sought apart from his father, instead he finds himself in great bondage. This is what sin does to us. Sin is deceptive. It deceives us to believe that God is not enough. It offers great promises, but in the end, it leaves us in a pigsty and ultimately it will leave us in death if we do not deal with it. 
Lance Armstrong was a famous American cyclist. I'm sure many of you have heard of his name. Um, he's a great example of sin's deceptive power and failed promises. If you don't know the story, Lance Armstrong was a cancer survivor who went on to win seven Tour de France titles, which was an incredible feat. He was an American hero. People wondered how he could accomplish such, such amazing feats after cancer. Some people accused him of blood doping, which was an illegal way to enhance athletic performance. So Armstrong utterly denied those accusations. But in 2006, he, to get, um, he was taken over court over a dispute of money. And at court, Armstrong gave sworn testimony that he, he never took drugs and he never would take drugs because he had so much to lose. He said this, quote, The faith of all the cancer survivors around the world, everything I do off the bike would go away, too. It's not about the money for me. It's about the faith that people have put in me over the years. So all of that would be erased. The sad thing is, several years later, Armstrong would be stripped of all seven of his Tour de France victories and banned from cycling for illegal blood doping. He later would confess that it was all a lie. He gave an excuse that he had, if he had not kept the lies of not doping, then his foundation would not have been able to help so many people. Lance Armstrong's case is, is an example of sin's power to deceive us. Sin's power to deceive is unmeasurable. It's what sin does. It's irrational. It makes us think that if we continue to do it, that everything will be all right. But in the end, it leads to bondage, as it led to Lance Armstrong and led to this younger brother. At this point in the story, the Pharisees would have been thinking, you know, good, this son's finally getting what he deserves after what he did to his father. So, but the story's about to take a turn as the younger son realizes the grave situation that his choices have taken him. Let's look at verses 17 through 19 together. Verse 17 says, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And we see something pretty marvelous in these verses here. The son comes to the end of himself. And he wakens to the reality of what, has, what sin has done in his life. He comes to a place of repentance. In these verses, the son acknowledges his sin against his father and against heaven. He accepts full responsibility for what he's done. I've sinned against heaven and against you, father. In his confession, he acknowledges that he is, not, he is now totally dependent upon the mercy and grace of his father. And so he goes on to say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, with this, with this change of heart, the, son, the younger son sets out to go back home. He doesn't really know how the father is going to respond or receive to him. But his heart has changed, and he wants to turn around and repent. So to, rec- so to recap, in the younger son, we see a couple things. First, we see the consequences of sin and rebellion, which inevitably will lead us in the pigsty. But we're also given a picture of a heart broken over sin, a picture of repentance and so now the son is going to set out for home to apologize and repent to his father. Let's now look at verses 20 to 24 and see the father's response to this. In verse 20 we read, So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But their father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. 
Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now what occurs here in these verses would have been unimaginable and completely unexpected to the original audience. The father's reaction to his rebellious son, the son that really wanted him dead and just wanted his money and things, is really nothing short of amazing. First, we see that the father spots the son a long way off. This tells us that the father was looking for the son. Now imagine the father on the front porch, every day waiting for his son to come home. Despite all that his son had done to humiliate him, he still saw him as his son. Once he spots his son, we're told that he is filled with compassion. And he starts out, and this, this compassion and love for his son compels him to humiliate himself once again as he starts to run. Now, it would have been almost unheard of for a Middle Eastern man like this father to pull up his robe and begin to run. For this father to run unashamedly at his son breaks all ru- rules of decorum. This only would have been because his, son, his father loved his son so much and his joy for his son outweighed whatever else anybody else thought. But here we see a picture of what God is like. Even before we can come and confess, God comes after us. He runs after the son. And later we see that he, even before his son confesses, he throws his arms around him and kisses him. What a remarkable picture we have of God. It's a picture that really helped change my perspective of God, that, that I didn't need to do something to earn his favor, that he loved me no matter what I did. So in the father's, after his father embraces and kisses his son, the son goes into his spiel. He goes into his confession. He says, Father, I sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And as we recall earlier, he was about ready to tell him that I'll, I'll be a hired hand. Just bring me, allow me to come home. But the father completely cuts him off and he's not able to say that. The father says to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. What's happening here is the father by giving him the family robe, by giving him the family ring, is welcoming him completely back into the family. No conditions attached. He's not going to be a hired servant. He's going to be a son. He's going to come back to what he was before. So in the father's son, in the father's response to his son, we have a picture of what God's great love is like for us. God's love for us isn't based on conditions or actions by us, but it's really unconditional. And it's based solely on grace. Jesus told this story primarily for the Pharisees to know that God welcomes wayward sinners home. He welcomes children because he loves them. So at this point in the story, the Pharisees would have been, you know, really dumbfounded at the actions of this father. Jesus goes on to share about the, the older brother now and what it meant and, and who it was meant to represent the Pharisees. Let's look at how the older brother reacts to this unconditional acceptance by the father and the love shown to the, to the younger brother. Look with me at verse 25. It says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never, never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, home, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. 
My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Here we see that the older brother was filled with self-righteousness and pride. The older son hated that the father freely offered grace and love to the younger son, the rebellious son. In his eyes, the son did not deserve his free acceptance. It wasn't fair that the father had done this for the younger brother. This idea of fairness is kind of ingrained in us, even as little children. As, as a dad with young kids, um, I'm often accused of not being fair. And so my kids will say to me, if, if, if we give one of the other kids maybe one more piece of candy or just one little ounce of more of pop, that's not fair. They got more than me. And I always wonder with my wife, as parents, you might wonder yourself, where do they learn this from, this fairness from? And so Suzanne, we, we jokingly tell the kids, there's no such thing as fair. Fair is a place. It's a place for pony rides, elephant ears, and roller coasters. We are, we are ingrained as, as, as humans that, that we think that things should be fair, that we're dutifully earning a certain thing. But what we see in the Father, it's not about being fair. It's about love. It's about grace. So we also see in the older brother's relationship with the father was based on duty and performance. The older brother says, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and you never gave me even a young goat. Now the older brother had his own form of rebellion against the father. He obeyed his father, not necessarily out of love, but out of obligation and duty. And he thought that because of his obedience, he had earned the right for a young goat. He too, like the younger brother, did not truly really love the father for himself. He just loved what the father could give him. The older brother did not understand that his relationship with the father was not based on obedience, but was based on grace, love, and acceptance as being his son. Now the parable ends by the older brother standing outside the party. We do not know if he comes in. It's left kind of a cliffhanger. But the older brother is given an invitation, and the invitation is an open one. He may come into the party, but only on the Father's terms, which is grace. So what do we see in this parable? We see a picture of a father that at great cost to himself lavishly receives a repentant son. We also see a father that goes out to a son and retreats him to come into the party to celebrate his younger son. So at one point, we see a father that loves a son who wishes him dead. We see a son who brings great shame on his father. But out of love, the father extends love and grace and runs after his son even before he's able to confess and joyfully welcomes him back into the family. For the original audience listening to the story for the first time, what the father done is really scandalous. And ultimately, this is the kind of story that actually put Jesus on the cross. The Pharisees couldn't stand that Jesus was welcoming sinners like this. So what does this mean for us? I think individually it means that we too have a good father in heaven. A father that at great cost to himself sent his only son, Jesus, that whoever would believe in him would receive eternal life. The gospel is a demonstration of God's love for us. In Jesus, God has already done all that is needed to bring us home to God. Now really it's up to us to respond to him and receive his gift. Now if you've not received Jesus in your life, don't wait another day. Come home. Like the Father in this story, our Heavenly Father is waiting and welcoming us home. Now, we're coming up upon a pretty exciting season for us as a church. Next week, we're going to kick off what we're calling this one mission. And it's really about reaching the people like the younger brother. 
people that don't really know the love of this Father who are living in rebellion from God and are lost. And so we're about ready to focus in with a laser focus of, to, to really be a church, be focused on how can we as a church extend the love of the Father. It's an exciting time. I'm really excited for what God's going to do for us as a church as we're all on that mission together. Next week we're going to have this event called, we're going to have this event called The Big Event. I really hope that all of you um, are coming to that. And I really hope all of you have begun to pray and, and invite somebody who uh, maybe has not a church home, doesn't know the Lord. This is going to be our party. This is going to be our celebration where we can welcome people into our fellowship and extend the love and hospitality of Christ. And so next week, I wanted to give an encouragement as we uh, go to the big events. This isn't about us. It's about those people who don't know Christ. And so I want to encourage us as, as, as Trinity Church to really be hospitable, that we are really hosts, that we want to be reaching out and looking for that younger brother and welcoming him with the love of the Father. So it's really exciting. I'm excited for what God's going to do, how he's going to use each of us to be on that mission, to be doing what the Father is, to, to come after lost sons. But I want to encourage us and warn us about the older brother syndrome. The danger for us as we focus on reaching the lost is the danger is that we struggle with all of us like, to be like Pharisees. And we begin to say, what about us? What about me? What are we doing for us? What are we doing for me as a church? And I want to encourage us to not get caught up in that, for us to, to not be like the older brother, but to rejoice and to celebrate when people who don't know Christ come into our doors and people who don't know Christ are here. And so it's exciting for what, what God's doing, but my danger is that we would, we would go back and to be like the elder brother and to be um, upset to be able to have people like that in our midst. And I'm excited that, that, that God is doing a great work. And so as we continue um, in worship, I want to close, I want to pray for us, pray that we can learn from the story, that God can teach us about his love as a good father, a father that runs after us, and uh, as the praise team comes up, if, if I can ask, could you guys do that other song, Come Home Running, instead of Good, Good Father? Great. I think that's a great song as a response. Um, let me pray. Uh, Lord, thank you. Um, Lord, I thank you that in this story, we see a picture of what you're like. We, we see a picture of what your kingdom is like, and we see a picture of what you are like as the king of your kingdom. You are a perfect father. Many of us like myself, maybe not, did not grow up with a father that loved us like we should. But Lord, I thank you that you have given us an example of Christ. And you've given us an example in your word that you are a, a father that pursues us. And that even before we are able to repent, Lord, you are after us. And I thank you for that. Lord, I pray that for those here, Lord, that you would just expand our understanding of you as a good and perfect father. And we would we come home running and embrace you. And Jesus would, would be in accept us into our lives. Lord, I thank you for this time and bless us as we worship you now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.